Hello, and welcome to Engage with Eagle Forum, a podcast to encourage the modern day woman in her vital role in shaping society. I'm your host, Tabitha Walter, the political director of Eagle Forum. And I'm Kirsten Hassler, our executive director. One of the biggest wins of the Trump presidency was nominating three judges to the Supreme Court who were eventually confirmed by the Senate. Through these confirmations, we saw the true colors of the left. The three justices were young and would be ruling on cases for most of our lifetimes. But the biggest threat perceived from the left was a greater possibility of overturning Roe v. Wade, the landmark decision in the 1970s that propped up abortion rights nationwide. With a Texas pro-life law making its way through the courts and a fall session slated to begin soon, we are all wondering if the left's fears are going to become a reality. That's why we've brought on Carrie Severino, who is making a huge impact up here in Washington, D.C. Yes, and let me tell you a little about her. Carrie Severino is the president of Judicial Crisis Network and the co-author with Molly Hemingway of the best-selling book, Justice on Trial, The Kavanaugh Confirmation, and the Future of the Court. As an expert on the confirmation process, she has been extensively quoted in media and regularly appears on television. During the Kavanaugh confirmation alone, she logged 104 TV appearances, in addition to doing extensive radio and print media. She writes and speaks on a wide range of judicial issues, including the constitutional limits on government, the federal nomination process, and the state judicial selection. She has testified before Congress on constitutional questions and brief senators on judicial nominations and regularly files briefs in high profile Supreme Court cases. She was a law clerk to the great Supreme Court Justice Clarence Thomas and to Judge David B. Sintel of the U.S. Court of Appeals for the D.C. Circuit and is a graduate of Harvard Law School, Duke University and Michigan State University. So, wow, that's amazing. That's an amazing amount of credentials. And one thing that her bio leaves out that I'd like to add is that she's a mom. And Carrie, before I had kids, I remember seeing you at a meeting and you had your your baby in a wrap. And I just love that. I mean, not only were you at the time being the queen of multitasking, which is (laughs) phenomenal, but you really showed us um us working women and you know this was pre-kids for me so that was an excellent example of um of how important family is um especially like in this dc culture so just thank you for for that visual for me and just taking a strong stance for the family and of course welcome to our podcast Thank you so much, and I I, I appreciate that. I I, I kind of purposely um, wanted to do what I could to stretch the window of what was considered possible for women with kids, because for a woman to be active in the workplace, that shouldn't have to mean that we just had the same kind of nine to five, or unfortunately for lawyers or DC area people like eight to seven lifestyle, you know, 24 seven, that a lot of men uh, have uh, adopted. And frankly, it isn't good for them either. So I think making sure we can be flexible and saying, hey, we can do interesting things, but it doesn't mean you have to abandon or outsource your kids in the process. <laughs> so um, yeah. it's, it's great to be able to bring them in uh, where we can and, and you know, embrace the, all the flexibility that modern life allows us. Yeah, exactly. I, we're very grateful for that flexibility. Mm-hmm. Um, so I guess to begin, just tell us a little bit about your organization and what you are focusing on right now. 
Yeah, so JCN has as its mission, trying to encourage the confirmation, the election, you know, the placement in any way of judges at all levels who are gonna be faithful to the constitution and to the rule of law, as it's actually written, not making it up from the bench, but really as it's written and passed by our elected representatives. So one of the big and most high profile ways we are involved in that is in the advocacy uh, when there's Supreme Court nominations as, as uh, some of the stuff that I did around the Kavanaugh nomination or the Barrett nomination or the Gorsuch nomination kind of highlights. Um, I also do a lot of commentary on major Supreme Court issues because we want to educate the public about the significance of the court so that they recognize how important it is in order to maintain our constitutional structure to have ju those judges who are going to be faithful to the rule of law. Uh, that's really a, a, a huge part of what makes America great. And then um, we want to make sure also that we're advocating for that at the state level too, because it often gets um, forgotten that 90 some percent of cases are actually filed at the state level. And many of us don't even know how our state judges are selected. We wanna make sure those men and women are also of the highest caliber and the highest principles that they're gonna be committed to the rule of law. Yeah, that's so important. Now, now let's start off with something basic uh, and, and we're gonna be talking a lot about the Supreme Court, the US Supreme Court. Um, can you explain the current makeup of the Supreme Court and how that dynamic um, is influencing these decisions right now? Yeah, so of course there's nine justices on the Supreme Court and right now we are really at a moment where I, I don't know if at the beginning of my career I ever thought we would see a court that had a solid majority of justices who are actually originalists. I think for a long time, um, you know, really for the last 50 some years, the, the vast majority of justices have actually been appointed by Republican presidents. But as Molly and I detailed in our book, unfortunately those presidents did not place a, uh, the judicial selection process is a very high priority. And in particular, they didn't really recognize the significance of judicial philosophy. They thought of the Supreme Court as, hey, we wanna get someone with an R after the name in here, or I wanna get someone who has the, is a political ally or you know, I, someone who's gonna help me out in some way for you know, one classic example is the appointment of, of Earl Warren as the Chief Justice of the United States. This is one of the most liberal Chief Justices in history. He was appointed by President Eisenhower, a Republican, really just because Warren was a, was a Republican himself, you know, um, that didn't line up with his judicial philosophy maybe, but, and he had uh, gotten out of the primary and let Eisenhower take over the primary uh, for the presidency. So he's like, hey, you know, that was, you did me a solid, I'm gonna put you as Chief Justice of the Supreme Court for life. That is huge and it had a major impact because that was one of the most liberal Supreme Courts that has just really undermined so many aspects of American law over generations uh, for, for, for you know this time. So now we are at a point in history where um, the justices who in the, that have been put on in the last few administrations have really turned the tide on that. It's been a matter, it's, it's been a hard fought battle and it's been a battle that was, we have seen as soon as Republicans kind of woke up and said, oh my gosh, we need to um, be appointing justices who are faithful to the constitution. It shouldn't be just a Republican issue, but unfortunately at this point, I think the Democrat party has really allied itself with this idea of effectively this judicial supremacy and judicial activism where judges can kind of make up and invent the law as they go. So it's it's exciting to see presidents that we've had some presidents who've really made that a priority to pick good justices. So now uh, between justices Clarence Thomas, who you know, I, I clerked for him, one of my my top favorites of all time, right? You know, he was appointed by Chief, by President Bush, who 
50% of his justices were awesome. That was Justice Thomas. The other 50% became some of the most liberal members of the court. And that was David Souter. So, you know, not a great track record. Then we move on to George Bush, who did, did a significantly better job, even in the face of a very hostile Senate that was filibustering these judges left and right. He appointed Chief Justice Roberts and Justice Alito. Unfortunately, only one of those justices claims to be to embrace, uh, you know, consistent originalism and textualism. And that's Justice Alito, Chief Justice Roberts, even during his confirmation hearings, wasn't willing to even commit to a specific judicial philosophy. That's that's dangerous because it means you can pick and choose. And then, of course, you fast forward to Donald Trump. He had the advantage of not having to worry about the judicial filibuster, of having a GOP-led Senate led by uh, leader uh, Mitch McConnell, who really prioritized judges as well, and having a mandate from the American people. Because we, as we remember, in 2016, he took office with the wind at his back on this because so many people went to the polls. More than one-fifth of voters said the Supreme Court was their number one issue, and they wanted to make sure that Justice Scalia was not replaced by someone who would dramatically shift the court to the left. So um, he went in, he put in Justice Gorsuch, Justice Kavanaugh, Justice Barrett, all of whom are have long track records of being solid originalists. And in their time on the court, we've really seen a important shift so that you don't have to now appeal to a swing vote like Anthony Kennedy was for a long time where, you know, you might win, you might lose on big issues, but unfortunately, sometimes the bigger and higher profile issue, the more likely uh, the perception that he or then later Chief Justice Roberts, who was kind of the next swing vote on the court, would be swayed by public pressure, which is the last reason a judge should be deciding how they're going to decide a case. It should be based on the law. It should be based on the actual text of the laws they're interpreting, the facts of the case, not you know, what's written on the front page of the New York Times. But that that unfortunately was the perception of the direction the court was moving. Now we've, we've kind of stopped that in its tracks and that's a very, very good news. So at this point we have, I would say five very consistent um, originalists and textualists in the court, looking at the text of the law, looking at the original meaning of the constitution. And then um, Chief Justice Roberts, who in many ways is conservative, but also, you know, has had some notable cases where it seems like he might be trying to, you know, figure out what direction the the public opinion is going. And I think he's just very scared he um, that he could end up having people saying nasty things about the court. And you know what, newsflash, they're going to say nasty things about the court if they, if they don't like every decision they make. And I think that's the challenge. And then, of course, we have three members of the court who are in the solid liberal camp, we have Justices Kagan and Sotomayor, who were Obama appointees, and then Justice Breyer, who gets a lot of press nowadays because he's the oldest member of the court. Um, he was one of Clinton's appointees and is now in his 80s. So he's getting he's getting a lot of public pressure now um, from the left, not to switch his votes, but to just step down already because they really are angry that he hasn't just gotten out of the way so they can continue to fill the court uh, with more with more young and uh, in their minds more diverse uh, justices on the court. They, they want someone who's going to vote their way, but um, but is maybe 20 years younger and maybe 40 years younger than uh, than Justice Breyer. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so we talked a little bit about, you know, the judicial activism part of, of the bench, but you, you played a very important role in the last three Senate confirmations of Justices Gorsuch, Kavanaugh, and Amy Coney Barrett. So you even wrote a book about Ka the Kavanaugh trial. So what, what were some of your takeaways from that experience, particularly what you observed on both sides of the aisles? And is this what we need to expect for every single confirmation going forward? Yeah, unfortunately, what we've seen is this progressive ratcheting up of the political 
pressure on judicial nominees. Um, and, we, and we do detail that as well in, in Justice on Trial. And it, it got, I think a lot of people thought it, it had gotten as bad as it was gonna get in 1991, uh, now 30 years ago, when, when Justice Clarence Thomas was confirmed. America was really horrified by what they saw there with, you know, a evidence that was <laughs> completely lacking, but that a man's character uh, and reputation was completely trashed publicly. And I think for a while, every you know, everyone was kind of uh, reeling from that, and going, "Okay, we, we don't maybe we don't want to go there again." Unfortunately, in 2018, we did go there again, and in fact, if anything, uh, the left went one worse. Uh, everyone watching this, I'm sure, remembers the fiasco that was going on. In some ways, we kind of uh, expected this to happen because we have seen the ratcheting up. And I think we had also seen that the a big factor in how controversial a nomination process is, is the stakes of the nomination. It's not actually even as much about the specific nominees much of the time, but what are the stakes of the seat? Because when the stakes are very high, you get the political pressure very high. This mm -hmm. is an unfortunate situation, right? Our, our nominees shouldn't be the focus of a, of a a political campaign in this way, but unfortunately in today's world, because judges have taken so much of a political role on themselves, uh, that has they, it has turned them into this big political football. Justice Scalia has written about this and he expressed concern uh, that when justices were making decisions that are the decisions that the constitution really leaves in the hands of the people and their elected representatives, uh, taking on political issues that aren't in the constitution, for example, and expanding constitutional uh, rights beyond where the constitution itself does. Like there's certainly people are, are, there's an open door, we can amend the constitution if we think it should protect more things or do things differently than it does, but it's not the role of unelected judges to be making changes to our founding document or to our laws. And unfortunately there are judges who uh, have kind of developed theories of interpretation that excuse themselves from effectively importing their own politics into it. So it's become a very political role. Mm -hmm. um, that when, when that happened, as Scalia predicted, you're gonna have a political process. And unfortunately, it's also become very ugly because a lot of people don't want to admit that what they're basically doing is saying, hey, I don't want to, I don't want to vote for anyone that Donald Trump appoints because I don't want someone who interprets the constitution as it's written. I think that's a hard argument for Democrats to make because most Americans really do yeah, on both sides of the aisle, actually, I think, think it's probably you should interpret the law as it's written, but um, because it sounds, you know, it sounds pretty basic, um, but they don't want to admit that that's something they're hostile to because they know that it's going to undermine their ability to control the outcome of cases through uh, policy driven judges. So um, when you had a situation like Justice Kennedy, who was for a long time, decades, the swing vote on the court. When he was stepping down and you got someone who was going to be, who had a track record, a decade long track record of being a consistent originalist on the court, that was like, whoa, World War III, we've got to, we got to make sure that this seat doesn't shift the court so there's a consistent uh, conservative majority. And I think that is the, at the end of the day, the main reason why we saw things get as ugly as they did. Um, at the beginning of the Kavanaugh confirmation, they were just sort of grasping at straws, you know, trying to find some scandal they could pin on Kavanaugh because they're just like, we got to have something, you know, what was, what was he doing with his baseball tickets? Did, he, did his friends pay him back for baseball tickets they bought him for, you know, really crazy, uh, you know, trumped up scandals. And then they finally hit upon uh, one that they were able to uh, leak very effectively to the press, that they were able to really follow the same playbook that they had used for the Thomas nomination uh, for and use uh, sexual allegations, uh, unsupported, uncorroborated, but uh, s sensational enough 
that they were able to almost derail that process. Um, one of the things that was so significant though is I think unlike the just the Thomas confirmation where it really came out of left field, no one had ever seen anything like that in a confirmation process before. By 2018, a lot of the people who were involved in one way or the other remembered very vividly what had happened to Justice Thomas. And so they knew, they're like, wait a minute, wait a minute. We've seen this before. In fact, almost the same timeline was followed in terms of how the allegations were rolled out, in terms of some of the, the way that this was uh, this smear campaign was run. Um, and so they said, you know, let's take a step back and let's make sure we're not just playing into a, uh, a, a media-driven uh, and, and po politics-driven smear campaign uh, here. And I think that really helped um, ensure that the process was done in a way that protected due process for the justice and, and gave him the ability to defend his reputation uh, because uh, what, what they were doing to the reputation of a man who was up to that point had lived so much of you know, all of his adult career in uh, very clearly in the public eye, had, had multiple FBI checks. You know, there was part of the reason he was chosen is there was no whiff of any possible scandal. Like if there's one guy who's clean, it's got to be Brett Kavanaugh because he's had six FBI checks. He's had people breathing down his neck, trying to find political dirt on him for decades. Like if there was something to find, they would have found it. Um, and I think that was, uh, you know, th the answer is it doesn't matter how many FBI checks you do. You, someone can always make something up. And if you if you have a standard that doesn't require you to have any corroboration or um, evidence for your allegations, you can make an allegation against everyone. Mm -hmm. uh, so I think that that was so significant too, because I think that when the country saw what was going on, people were horrified. They were horrified on both sides of the aisle, I think, mm -hmm. uh, but particular Republicans were like, this is not how we want things to go. And I think really that was what made the Barrett process a different beast entirely, even though it was a huge stake seat. Justice Ginsburg is over here and Justice Barrett's like over here, very different perspectives on the mm -hmm. court, right? Even though their life stories share some interesting parallels in terms of breaking glass ceilings, in terms of being these really accomplished and impressive women in their, in their respective careers. Um, and yet her, her confirmation hearing didn't uh, devolve into that. And I think a lot of that was lessons that were learned uh, maybe even by the left as well, because they saw how um, disgusted America was with the politics that were done during the Kavanaugh mm -hmm. confirmation. And I think they realized that close to an election because it was you know, all done within days of, of the uh, 2020 elections. They realized they couldn't afford to go down that road again because I think they thought it would, it would hurt them so badly uh, in the eyes of the American people. Oh yeah, that was for sure really damaging and, and not... Uh, I mean, it was very damaging to Brett Kavanaugh and his family, of course, but it was multifaceted. You know, it was damaging to the left. It was damaging to women who have actually experienced sexual assault. And so it was just horrific all the way around. You're, you're completely right about that. Now, one of the issues that the left also gets really ugly about during these confirmations is the issue of abortion. Should, should the issue of abortion be considered when senators are confirming these nominees for the Supreme Court? Uh, well, you know, this is, there's a lot of ways that this gets looked at that aren't appropriate for the judicial confirmation process. This is the challenge. As judges, um, 
and everyone who's appointed to the Supreme Court is generally a judge beforehand. So they're actually already bound by legal ethics, but they're of course going to be bound by that when they get to the court anyway. They can't make guarantees of how I'm going to vote in a certain case. You can't go up there and say, you know what? When I see this kind of case, I'm going to vote this way. And if I, if, if you, if for this case comes before me to vote that way, that's that's prejudice. It's literally prejudging the case. And I think honest uh, judges will will acknowledge too that you know I might even have thought about an issue really deeply. Maybe I've even written about it before. But until you actually get an opportunity to look at the, the specific facts of a case, to have the extensive, I mean, thousands of pages of briefing on both sides. You, you can't say that you really understand it fully. There might be aspects of it you haven't seen yet. And maybe there's some research that you're unaware of yet, uh, you know, historical evidence that you haven't seen or uh, legal cases you haven't considered in that context. So I think there's a lot of practical reasons too that they wanna say, you know, I can't, I can't prejudge these cases. I, unfortunately, there's a lot of people and some of them on both sides of the aisle, but particularly on the left that want judges to make promises. Like I will vote to uphold this case or I will vote to do this. You can't do that as a judge. Now, unfortunately, as I kind of alluded to before, it's it's sort of understandable that that people want to know where judges stand on these issues because where we are now is that way too many of our issues that aren't in the constitution themselves nonetheless get decided by judges. So there are certain issues that obviously the Supreme, the the constitution speaks to that judges have to be the final call on like how free speech uh, works in our society or how the second amendment impacts things. So those are in the constitution and the, 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 when we put something in the constitution, that's taking it out of the representative process. Generally, you know, our system gives the people their ability to govern themselves, but the constitution takes certain things back. You know, it says, hey, you know, there's some things that it, I don't care if you've got a majority that wants a vote, a, a law that infringes the freedom of religion. We're not going to do that. I don't care if you've got a law that infringes the freedom of speech and everyone wants it. You can't do that. That's what, that's something we're just not going to do. So those are proper things checks on the representative process. The problem comes when you have things that are not in the constitution, for example, uh, the right to abortion, the constitution just doesn't speak to it at all. And that's something that the constitution really leaves in the hands of the people. Uh, again, if, if, the, if the American people wanted to say, hey, we all feel strongly this should be protected in the constitution, there's an amendment process for that. If the American people wanted to say, hey, we all feel really strongly that we need a human life amendment and that, that life should be protected in every state from conception, there's an amendment process for that. Um, but if the Constitution doesn't speak to it, uh, then it is reserved. That's a right that's reserved to the people and the states to deal with. And so it shouldn't be something that our federal judges are asked about a lot. Unfortunately, again, it, it, there's a lot of people because that's been such a defining issue in our law. And Justice Ginsburg herself talked about this. She actually um, criticized Roe versus Wade originally because she was concerned that by the Supreme Court taking that case and deciding it the way they did when they did, you know, it, it kind of cut off the public debate on a, a major topic, um, which was a big debate in the 70s when the case was decided. And you know what? It's still a big debate today um, that by taking it out of the, the public process, that actually did a lot of damage to the system. It kind of ossified that in one spot in Roe versus Wade. And she, she sort of thought, I think she maybe thought that they should have waited a while until it was more clear in public discourse to come to the conclusion. But be that as it may, she recognized it, the damage it was causing. And I think we're seeing 40 some years later now that there's still a lot of um, distortion in our political process surrounding judges because of that decision. I think if the Supreme Court, and they have an opportunity to, to look at it this, this term, if the Supreme Court returned us to a situation where that's an issue that is dealt with by our state governments and by our elected representatives, that actually would be a good thing for the court all around because it takes that 
third rail issue out of the Supreme Court and says, hey, you guys deal with it. It's going to look different in Texas and in Mississippi and in New York and California. And that's, you know, you can fight those battles each in individual places. And, I, and there's going to be, there would be a lot of follow-up, you know, debates of where we want to draw these lines uh, for ourselves. But then it's not something that we have to, that has to distort the judicial process. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, and in fact, that kind of did happen with this, with this Texas heartbeat bill, because the Supreme Court denied an emergency injunction in a 5-4 ruling. So can you talk a little bit about what that means? And if this bill does indeed make its way up to come to the Supreme Court, is it one that could actually overturn Roe v. Wade? So uh, first of all, I, we have to be clear about what that case was about, because unfortunately, a lot of the reporting, and this happens maybe more in the abortion issue than anywhere, but we see mm-hmm. it a lot of places where the reporting has been just very distorted and sometimes very hyperbolic and involves a lot of scaremongering about the case. The decision the Supreme Court came to didn't actually go to the merits of the law itself. And a lot of the left are like, the, the Supreme Court effectively overturned Roe versus Wade you know, it already. No, no, it, it, it didn't. What they were just saying is this law, the, 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 um, pregnant, the um, abortion clinics that were suing in that case, they wanted to stop the law before it even went into effect. And the court was saying, look, you can't just say, please stop this law. You have to have someone you're suing who's going to enforce the law that, that we can even, that we can command not to enforce it. They didn't have that in that case. The state isn't the one enforcing the law. It could be private individuals who would bring a suit. Until someone actually brings a lawsuit, we can't tell them, no, you can't bring this lawsuit. So the court did exactly the right thing. I think on a procedural basis, um, if, if, it, if this case didn't deal with abortion, that probably would have been a 9-0 decision. You know, it's the kind of thing that like, yes, of course, you, you, have, to ha- you have to be have a case to challenge before you can actually give that injunction. But um, because again, just, just distortion of abortion law, it, it came out differently um, and was split a little more along, along party lines there. Now, eventually, is this potentially going to come to the Supreme Court? Sure. What you would have to have, currently the law in Texas is you can't have an abortion uh, after a heartbeat is detected, which is generally around six weeks, unless there's a risk, a medical emergency, a risk of the life of the mother, and then, you know, and then, then they could. And if they, if someone did perform an abortion, then you could sue the abortionist um, and, and bring that case in court. So if, if someone actually performed the abortion and then someone brought the lawsuit, then yes, it's gonna, we're gonna have this whole thing start all over again. And then the court would be in a position to be able to either stop that lawsuit or let it continue. Um, that might make its way up to the Supreme Court, uh, who knows. It's actually, the, 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 the strange thing is we're getting a lot of focus on that case, but there's actually a case that really squarely addresses is Roe versus Wade good constitutional law? And that's gonna be decided by the court being argued maybe as early as December. We don't, they've already accepted the case. It's already been briefed um, or it's almost finished being briefing. We've gotten part of the briefs, the case in. Um, and so they're gonna hear this case. That's, the, that's about a Mississippi law. And that case is called Dobbs. You probably have heard that talked about in the media as well. In that one, that one is a, a, a different type of regulation. As I said, every, you know, different states are gonna choose to do different things in Mississippi, they have, have a law that says you can't have an abortion after 15 weeks. And they, the reason they chose that has to do with a combination of things. It's, it's about when fetal pain uh, is, is cap- we know fetuses are capable of pain. It also is a point after which abortions are much more dangerous for the mother as well. So the women's health is part of that concern. And so they, um, that, that's the line they chose, right? And that case is really gonna squarely question is Roe good law? Because it's pretty clear that under Roe versus Wade and Planned Parenthood versus Casey, which is the other, you know, there's several cases in this line of cases, um, that law just simply can't stand. 
right? But the court's going to have to look at it and say, hey, yeah, but should Roe be the precedent we're looking at? Really, at the end of the day, we have to look at what the Constitution says. And so um, I think that's going to be a, a really important issue to come up. It's going to kind of test the justices metal because we know, and it's kind of a, a human natural instinct, that justices like any of us would rather not make a big decision if they could make a small decision. They'd rather not like go, you know, go in for a pound if they could go in for a penny. The challenge in this case um, is, you know, there's some issues where it is pretty easy for the court to take a stepwise thing to say, well, you know, I don't know if this case applies you know, if we want to strike it down everywhere, but it definitely doesn't apply to this case, or it definitely doesn't apply here. And they they follow that pattern a lot. And you know, and then after after three or four different cases, slowly chipping it away at it, often the underlying case is just overturned. That's a, you know, that's something that might make more sense and even have a principled basis in some areas of law. Here, it's not clear how the court could get there, given the nature of Roe versus Wade. If 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 Roe is not does not prohibit. Roe implant and Casey do not prohibit abortions after 15 weeks, the court is left with, okay, then what, what do they mean? And without absolutely making something up from scratch, just making up a new standard, the court doesn't really have anything else to fall back on. So they have a, a, a difficult choice. They either have to say, hey, we're going to do this big thing that everyone on the left is saying, it's going to be the end of the world. The sky is falling if you do it. Um, or on the other hand, we've got to do something that is absolutely anathema to the judicial role, which is just make stuff up. You know, it's not even we can go back to the previous law on this issue. No, there's nothing else to go back to. You have to just make up a new standard. So I th I, I am hopeful that the justices in the court um, who are the originalists and the textualists will have to recognize that, hey, as much as we'd rather have to, you know, no one wants to have to make hard decisions, but you know what? That's what the Supreme Court's there for. I hope that they will be able to step up and do it. And in a, in a way, I think it almost makes it easier for the whole country and for the court as well, because if they don't do that, we're just going to have every single state. You know, the Texas law next, and then mm -hmm. there'll be the Georgia law next. I mean, there'll be a million different follow-on cases. We're going to be reliving this uh, political, you know, drama and nightmare for the next who knows how long. Um, and I think that really just puts the same kind of pressure on the court that none of us wants to see. It shouldn't be a political institution. It should be a legal institution making those legal decisions. So, you know, we'll we'll find out. We'll we'll get to see the oral arguments again, maybe in December, maybe in January. We'll see, and then we'll know by June what the final decision is. And I think that's going to be uh, the big the big uh, question is what does the Supreme Court do with that key issue uh, when they finally grapple with it head on? But let's not get distracted by all of the procedural cases that you know maybe maybe touch on this, but that's not really the main issue the court's looking at. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's. That's really exciting and also really scary at the same time. Yeah. Um, so before you wrap up, do you have any predictions on the topics that the Supreme Court might tackle in the near future? Oh, yeah. I mean, the Supreme Court has some big stuff coming up. Uh, obviously, abortion we talked about, but there's an, actually a really important Second Amendment case that's coming up this term as well. And this is another issue where the court gets a lot of public pressure. The last time they had a, mm -hmm. a, a Second Amendment case, they really haven't dealt with the issue in any detail in like 10, more than 10 years. Um, but uh, they they have to now uh, look at this case. And the last time this came up a few years ago, 
they got a, a brief from a group of de Democratic senators that was really outrageous and basically threatened that if they didn't get rid of that case somehow, that they would pack the court. This is the kind of pressure that's unfortunately um, being put on our justices. Uh, it, that case, I think, unfortunately, the court did decide to declare moot and didn't didn't actually come to a conclusion. I think that was 2019, but I, I'm trying to remember when what what uh, term that was. But it. I think that that is unfortunate uh, that it's been so long the Supreme Court hasn't weighed in on that issue, but we're going to see them weighing in on it again. I think there's some other big cases that uh, you know they haven't they haven't accepted all their cases for this term yet, but there's some other really important issues uh, in terms of property rights that are going to be coming up in terms of separation of powers. So I think that's going to there, there's going to be a, a lot on their plate this term. It's going to be an exciting year. Mm -hmm. And where can our listeners go to find out more information about what you are working on and just really how to track all this stuff at the Supreme Court? Yeah, yeah. So our website is judicialnetwork.com, but I do a lot of work uh, kind of it, on, on Twitter. I'll, uh, you can follow me at JCN Severino. And there I also highlight some of the pieces that I write uh, at National Review Online's bench memos, where I, I blog relatively regularly, um, as well as any other, you know, uh, pieces that, that um, I'm writing on that, on this issue to keep people, you know, up to date on what's going on in the courts. Wonderful. Well, thank you so much, Carrie, for joining us. And I mean, this topic is, is, hard sometimes to separate the political from the court. And so you framed it so perfectly and we appreciate that. If you're listening to our podcast, be sure to subscribe, share with your friends and leave us a review. You can find us on all of the major social media outlets and at engagewitheagleforum.com. From your house to the state house to the White House, this is Engage with Eagle Forum. Mm -hmm.